0: Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcasts. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Jonah Messenger. He is a PhD student of physics at Cambridge, uh, and he also writes for the Breakthrough Institute. Uh, and we are going to have a conversation about fusion, uh, and uh, it's something I haven't talked about in a long time. I'm very interested to hear what are the latest developments? Um, so what are the, uh, well, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks Stuart, I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for having me on. Sure. Uh, and so what are the latest developments in terms of fusion? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, so the, the fusion sector broadly um, is doing quite well, uh, raised like just over collectively, there's a huge private uh, startup space now and, and they've raised and collectively over $5 billion now um, and so that's plasma based fusion. And it's really sort of um, uh, really taken off just in the last, I'd say like three, four years, I and mean, I think like five, 10 years ago, the fusion industry was sort of nascent and, and now it's sort of gotten quite, quite
0: big. And so where is it like how, you know, like what I remember the, 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 there's this great movie uh, with uh, Morgan Freeman uh, that talks about cold fusion. There was another one, uh, the saint, uh, which talks about the Russians who, who developed cold fusion and then they steal it and they give it to everybody for free. Uh, because of this, just kind of, you know, this idea that it's going to, you know, you can take hydrogen. I believe that's what it was. And you can take hydrogen and you can make limitless electricity from it. Is that, is that accurate?
1: Yes. I, it's funny. I actually haven't uh, watched any of these movies, though. I've heard of them. Um, Yes, I mean, I, I think it's worth uh, distinguishing uh, from the get-go. Um, so, you know, most most news that people will hear about fusion um, uh, in the media will will be sort of based on what I'll call like sort of conventional or plasma-based fusion. And then sort of what I work on is um, um, sort of off the side um, in a very different sort of physical environment environment um, it's called low energy nuclear reactions or sort of more colloquially known uh, as, as you said earlier uh, as cold fusion. Um, uh, the, the cold fusion space is sort of bit, you know somewhat heretical um, has been sort of uh, castigated in some sense uh, by sort of the, the mainstream physics community uh, for like the last 30 years or so. Um, and sort of right now what, what, what's particularly exciting for me is um, uh, the field sort of has a, has a bit of a resurgence. Um, so for the first time in 30 years, uh, the U S department of energy's, uh, advanced research project agency for energy or ARPA-E, um, which is basically modeled after I think more people will be familiar with DARPA, which is sort of the defense department's innovation arm. And so ARPA-E is sort of like the DARPA for, for the department of energy in the U S. Um, so ARPA-E has, uh, um, recently announced in the last few months, uh, eight awardees for a research grant program. It's the first time in 30 years that they're funding cold fusion research. Um, and I'm um, on a, on one of those research teams uh, based out of MIT. Um, and so, you know, it, this is still sort of very much uh, an under the radar field. Um, probably most people in the physics community uh, aren't aware of that development um, and are sort of either not very... Um, either, either totally unfamiliar with the field if they're, if they're on the younger side and if they're on the older side, um, uh, don't have a great impression of the field. Um, but, but I, I think that there's sort of exciting developments, um, in cold fusion or, or low energy nuclear reactions, which we, L, we call LENR or LENR for short. Um, so, so it's an exciting time. Yeah. It's an exciting time to be in the field.
0: Uh, and okay. So, uh, very interesting. There's plasma based fusion and then there's, uh, uh cold fusion L-N-E-R. Uh, and it's super interesting. Why was, why is it theoretical?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's L E N R low energy nuclear reactions. Um, it's a good question. Um, there's like a long answer. Different people have different, have different thoughts. I think maybe, um, a good place to start is to just sort of like riff a little bit about, um, about what fusion is, you know, in general and sort of build up, um, to sort of what, what distinguishes this sort of plasma fusion conventional plasma based fusion and then sort of the um you know un- un- unconventional uh, cold fusion or LENR um i guess you know just just sort of for s- some listeners who who maybe don't come from a technical background i'll start like sort of su- super super basic and then we'll build our way up um so you know basically uh we're all familiar with the periodic table right you got a bunch of different elements and those elements are indexed by the number of protons they have in their nucleus um and elements are made up of protons and neutrons and electrons, um, and the vast majority of the mass of these elements are in the protons and neutrons, as opposed to the electrons. Uh, and those protons and neutrons are in the center of the of the atom, uh, which we call the nucleus. Um, and and that's some sort of somewhat surprising. You have the the protons and neutrons in the middle, and the electrons uh, sort of orbiting uh, outside. And that's sort of a simple enough model to get you to get you where you need to go. Um, and it's surprising because you have all of these positively charged protons. So the protons are positively charged, neutrons are obviously neutral, and then electrons are negative. And you know we're all familiar familiar with magnets. You know we would play around with magnets, right? And, and when you try to stick the positive ends together, they obviously repel. Like charges uh, repel each other. They don't. They don't want to. They don't want to come together. And so in a similar way, it's sort of surprising that you know why are these protons all hanging out together in, in the middle of the nucleus or in the middle of the atom? And the reason why is because there's another force at play, which is the strong nuclear force. And that's a, it's a residual force. It can get quite complicated. But all we need to know is, is that it's another force that at short distances um, is much, much stronger than that positive, mm-hmm. positive charge repulsion, which we call Coulomb repulsion. And so that what, that's what holds or binds the nucleus together. Um, and what we're trying to do in fusion is to fuse or combine two light nuclei. Into a heavier nuclei, and an interesting thing that happens is when you take two light nuclei, like for example hydrogen uh, isotopes of hydrogen, um, and all an isotope is is is, is um, you know elements can have different numbers of neutrons in them, um, and so right so elements are defined by the number of protons, but elements can have different numbers of neutrons, and the different numbers of neutrons define different isotopes. Mm. So. Most fusion concepts are trying to fuse or or bring together two uh, isotopes of hydrogen, two light isotopes of hydrogen. And when you bring them together and form a heavier nucleus, interestingly, the resulting nucleus is ever so slightly less, uh, has ever so slightly less mass as the sum of the two reacting nuclei. And that missing mass gets converted into pure energy. Most people are familiar with uh, Mm. E equals mc squared, Einstein's famous equation. And so E is the energy equals uh, M for mass times C squared. So C squared, so C is, is, is the speed of light. And so it's a very big number. You square it, multiply it by M, the mass, and you get a huge amount of energy out. And so um, the problem with this, it sounds great, right? You know, uh, climate change solved and, and you know, we're, we're, we're golden. The, the problem, though, is, is that um, we talked about the Coulomb repulsion, right? Positive charges uh, or like charges repel each other. And when you bring those two nuclei together um, when two nuclei interact they're going to repel each other similarly because the two nuclei are positively charged Uh, and so the solution to that conventionally is you dump a bunch of kinetic energy into the system
2: Mm.
1: so in common terms it means you get it real hot tens or uh, tens of millions or or even hundreds of millions of degrees um, hotter than the sun Uh, and that gives it enough kinetic energy to overcome uh, or 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 uh, sort of squeeze these two nuclei together uh, and overcome that coulomb repulsion and once they get close enough the strong nuclear force that other force takes over and binds the the two nuclei together and they fuse mm-hmm. um now when you're working at those uh, I, uh, if you, uh, are you still with me
0: <laughs> yeah yeah still with you uh that's great so basically uh, uh, kind of re-ca- re- rehash is that uh, there's a bunch of nucle- neut- neutrons, electrons, and protons. Uh, electrons are all kind of orbiting the thing. Uh, you've got the strong nuclear force that you need to make things really hot in order to activate it. And then once you activate it, then you can un- un- you can unleash leash a lot of energy. Is that accurate?
1: Almost. So mm. it, it you don't need to activate it. It's always there, except mm. it's really, really weak at, lo- at distances that are far apart from each other. Uh, so oh, far apart from each other... Yeah. When when you're far away from each other, uh, the repulsion of the the positive charge, that dominates. But once you get close enough, the strong nuclear force, which wants to bring together protons and neutrons, that takes over.
0: So where does the heat come in?
1: The heat comes in because um, in order to get the two nuclei close enough together Mm. for the strong nuclear force to start to dominate, you need to overcome that repulsion. And one way to do that is you throw a bunch of that kinetic energy or heat into the system and they're moving around, all these nuclei are moving around oh, and they have okay. enough energy to, to come together. Sure. Um, and, uh, and, and so you, you have sort of a probability of fusion that will increase with temperature. Got it. Um, uh, for, uh until you get to really, really hot.
0: Uh, and so now, now is this, this is the traditional plasma fusion. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. And so
1: what, what, what we mean when we see plasma is that those temperatures, um, there's so much energy in the system that the electrons actually get ripped apart from the nucleus, mm-hmm. and so it's like a gas, except it's like a charged gas because it's got these negatively charged electrons and a positively charged nuclei. Um, now, the the distinguishing point with cold fusion is 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 the idea of cold fusion is is that um, there's a a number of different metals that absorb hydrogen really well, so palladium, titanium, nickel. Um, And when they absorb hydrogen, they form what's called a metal hydride. Um, One point to sort of uh, one side note here is that uh, it's worth talking about the different isotopes of hydrogen real quick. So you've got regular hydrogen, right? We're familiar with in water. So like H2O Mm. and and that's called protium. All that means is its nucleus has one proton. Mm. You can have heavy hydrogen, uh, Mm. deuterium. The nucleus of a deuterium is... Uh, a deuteron and that's just a proton but with one extra neutron mm. and you can go higher but that's good enough for now. Um, so this protium hydrogen and this deuterium hydrogen can get absorbed into these into these metals forming metal hydrides or metal deuterides and the um, uh, sort of the the concept of cold fusion or of LENR is that you can actually do fusion reactions and maybe even other nuclear reactions within these metal hydrides. Oh. At low or ambient uh, uh, temperatures, uh, sort of benign temperatures and pressures, you know, you know, uh, comparing to to tens or hundreds of millions of degrees. Um, Now, why is cold fusion heretical? (laughs) Um, Well, it's uh, it's heretical. I I would say sort of for uh, for two broad reasons. Um, The first is that um, it's sort of tautologically inconsistent with with the conventional theory. So we just talked about how you know you've got to get really hot to just to, to bring nuclei together. Um, and uh, so you know if, if to, to to overcome the Coulomb repulsion. but if if you're not getting to those temperatures, then then how are you how are you getting around that repulsion? That's the first thing. The other theoretical problem um, is that um, when you do fusion, there's a range of expected um, uh, reaction pathways. Uh, and those have been very well studied for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you would expect to see, depending on which hydrogen nuclei you're fusing, you would expect to see predictable reaction pathways. Sometimes it's only one reaction pathway, sometimes it's multiple. And when it's multiple, the proportions of, of, uh, 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 of likelihood of, of each of those pathways are very well understood um and cold fusion uh when, you know in the in the experimental literature in, in the cold fusion literature um uh we don't see those pathways we don't see those products mm-hmm. um and it's not to say we don't see any you know radiation products some people have claimed radiation products but they're inconsistent with what you would expect from the
0: conventional theory mm. okay i've and got the question. other th- yeah, yeah yeah please uh so so there's there's Plasma fusion, which relies on heat to get these electrons spinning in the right way, that clashes uh, them together, and I assume that that leads to energy uh, that we can use as human beings. And then cold fusion uh, is basically there's metals that are uh, have these conditions that allow you to do fusion. Um, and where does the energy come in, or where am I missing the gap in order to understand what you're saying?
1: Yeah. So, so in the in in the plasma based fusion uh, picture, it's it's the nuclei that are that are coming together and, and and, 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 then fusing. now in the cold fusion case, um, it, it's not a mistake that it's hard to understand. <laughs> um, and, and this is why it's heretical. Yeah. Um, so, uh, um, there are multiple different perspectives on how, on how this is possible. Um, but I guess before we get too, too deep into sure. explanations, it's worth sort of, you know, having a brief sort of discussion of sort of why anyone is talking about this at all. Mm. Um, and, and the re- the reason is, is that there's been a range or sort of, um, uh, a body of anomalous experimental results. Mm-hmm. And this is the other problem in cold which is that they are anomalous. Um, so they're not Rather, always they reproducible?
0: They reproducible. Okay.
1: Yeah. 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 So, so re- reproducibility is certainly a problem. Um, and, um, um but there was a range of uh, a set of anomalous experiments um by dozens of different research groups over over decades that purport to show a range of also a range of different experimental observables um that um uh, that if true uh sort of require an explanation beyond conventional theory Mm. and those and so there's a number of problems to sort of unpack here, right? One, we've got well, it's not reproducible. A lot of these experiments, uh, or or at least sort of reproducibility has been a challenge historically. Um, which is not to say that experiments are never reproducible,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, um, and that the experimental literature, you know, normally when 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 you have sort of a, a new phenomena, say in nuclear energy or something like that, it the experiments are very repeatable. Not only are they reproducible, but the the outcomes of the the yeah. uh, outputs that you would see that you would detect they're uh they're the same the, you know depending on what you're reacting you get the same outputs that makes sense right mm-hmm. the solid state environment though is much much more complicated and and sort of messy um okay. than than the plasma environment interesting um and the physics can get quite complicated here but um, um in fact, actually, but before before I get there, I, I think it's sort of worth saying the the sort of the canonical or uh, historical claim of cold fusion, and I think sort of if you were to poll sort of most physicists, they would either be unfamiliar with the field or they would understand that the sole sort of um, claim of the cold fusion community is what's called excess heat. So the uh, h- sort of historical, Uh, experiment was was done in the late 80s early 90s where there was these electrochemists uh, martin fleischman and stanley Pons, and they um, ran an electrolysis experiment which is basically you have two metals uh, an anode and a cathode so one is negatively biased and the other is positively biased Um, and you have an electrolyte or in this case sort of water but Mm. heavy water Mm. so instead of h2o it's d2o for the deuterium and when you run a current through it, um, uh, and this is actually like a, a an experiment some people do in high school, mm. you um, you uh, disassociate the deuterium and the oxygen, so you see bubbles um, of uh, hydrogen gas or deuterium gas and and of oxygen. Um, and d- what can happen in these experiments is that the deuterium can be driven into uh, into one of the metal uh, electrodes, forming mm. a metal deuteride. Mm -hmm. So palladium deuteride. Mm -hmm. This is all sort of very, um, so far, very uncontroversial. Um, Interestingly, you can sort of measure how much electrical power or electrical energy you're putting into the system because you know what you're driving the current. So you know how much electrical energy is going in uh, over time and at any given time, i.e. the rate or the power. Um, and then using something called calorimetry, which I won't get into too much, but it's basically a way of measuring the heat coming out of a of a sample. You can measure the thermal power or thermal energy coming out of the uh, coming out of the out of the system. Mm-hmm. And and what they did was is they um, ran several of these experiments, and they saw that the thermal power um, uh, spiked for multiple days at various times, way above the electrical input power.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so the
1: way they explain this missing energy is that there is uh, fusion reactions of deuterium going on in the palladium deuteride. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not worth, I think, rehashing that whole saga. I write about it in um, in a piece I recently wrote for uh, for the Breakthrough Institute, which I imagine we can like put in the show notes. Yep. Um, is that and, the fusion and, and runs think, hot and cold? Yeah, that's fusion runs hot and cold. Um, and I'll put that and, in the and notes. There, yeah, and I think basically um, that that whole saga... I think, sort of uh, put a a bad taste in the physics community's mouth about cold fusion. Um, And uh, those two scientists have been sort of um, castigated as sort of like fraudsters, uh, I think probably most people would say. And I think that's totally wrong. Um, So I I think that what we're dealing with is an emergent, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, the, so what you're saying, though, is that due to this new system that they developed, some people think that they're fraudsters. Uh, 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 and interesting enough, there's this new this guy posted on Twitter about a, a, a new technology. A lot of people are calling him a fraudster as well. Uh, and it's so interesting because there's so many opportunities to make either hype and money through hype. Or actually, make a cr- crazy amount of money through changing the universe, uh, and it's always really difficult to tell what's what's real and what's not. Uh, and that's a maybe we can get to that later. Um, but to kind of rehash what you were talking about is basically because of this particular way of having the heavy water, no heat, there was more output than there was input. So there's like a sign that says, "Okay, well, if we get this right, we could create more energy than we put in." Right
1: yeah and it's not and just to be clear we're not violating thermodynamics here mm-hmm. the idea is is that you know you're basically converting mass to energy so that's where the missing energy is coming yeah, from uh-huh. um now it you know that I, I i i write about that sort of that saga in in the piece um but i think part of the reason why you know i'm it's funny i i i read so many fleischmann and Pons, uh uh papers um uh you know in writing that article and sort of my my uh, but I'm actually happy to like never look at it again. And the reason uh, why, and I read about this in the piece, is, is that I think actually, although most people in the sort of mainstream physics community would be most familiar with that as associate and associating that with cold fusion, I think actually it's you know not it doesn't make my top ten list for the most compelling
0: experiments mm-hmm. um, for this right. field. So uh, if people are interested, what are your favorite experiments in this field? Yeah, like, so I, go- I
1: actually I yeah i i linked to a bunch uh, of different experimental reports um in in that article um some fa- uh, or some sort of uh ones that i particularly like um and 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 i guess i'll just sort of make clear here the reason why i like certain experiments in more than others is that certain experiments are are less uh ambiguous than others mm. so right so excess heat is sort of an ambiguous observable because there's nothing necessarily about you know excess heat energy that screams nuclear um doesn't prove that there's a nuclear mechanism now it is true that you know they you know, these these folks and other people have performed these types of electrolysis experiments um um in the in the past 30 years um uh, and and this is something that like you know the history sort of gets wrong you know like a, a lot of sort of like uh sort of like professional debunkers you know like science writers will say like oh it was never reproduced and like totally incorrect uh um but 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 importantly the reason why it you know there's sort of like a philosophy of science issue at hand here which is mm-hmm. the reason why that doesn't matter that actually there were other people that reproduced it um, um is because the result the the observables fundamentally ambiguous this excess heat is is fundamentally ambiguous it's it's not it doesn't scream hey this has to be a nuclear reaction there's no other prosaic explanation for um, uh, for the process, because in excess heat, there's a whole bunch of different, you know, um, ways somebody could say, hey maybe this isn't right, maybe you're missing this variable, or maybe you haven't sort of calibrated your system properly, etc, etc, etc. And so what I'm more interested in is experiments that either through material science characterization, Mm -hmm. or through nuclear diagnostics show pretty unambiguous signs or indications of nuclear reactions. So um, there's a professor um, at the University of Illinois, George Miley, um, who ran and he's sort of retired and um, nowadays actually visited his lab. He still has a lab that is operating um, uh, and University of Illinois actually happens to be my alma mater. But I didn't know about about his lab uh, while I was there. Um, but, but he 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 did a, a number of, of these types of electrolysis experiments um, in the late 90s. Uh, and what he shows is um, a number of new elements that he detected in these metals. So hmm. what that means is that hmm. you had, a, say, a, for example, palladium, uh, palladium hydride, uh, and you do an elemental analysis after the experiment, and there's a lot of n- elements that weren't there um, uh, before the experiment, but that it sort of appeared after the experiment. Really interesting. Now, but that that itself could be explained in a number of different ways. Maybe it's contamination, right? Um, there's a lot of different sort of ways you can try to explain things. But what he did that was so interesting is, is that he used a, a mass spectrometry technique, um, which can very, um, very active, accurately and very uh, with, with a high degree of sensitivity, define um, which isotopes of different elements are present. Mm-hmm. And and long story short, he can then sort of see is there any pattern in in these isotopes that have sort of appeared in in our system. Mm-hmm. And what he shows is, is that there's sort of peaks in in which isotopes are more uh, common than others. Um, and 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 what's really interesting is is that when you look at this, when you look at the figure, there's a particular figure that I imagine I'm imagining here, and I I link to the paper in in one of my in one of my hyperlinks uh, in my piece. Is you see that uh, two of these peaks, uh, the atomic masses add up to, you know, roughly speaking, different isotopes of the metal at hand here, which I believe was palladium. And for me, when I look at that figure, it sort of screams fission, hmm. um, because you know, when you when you do a fission reaction, you're breaking apart a part nucleus into fragments, mm. um, but you have to conserve mass. And so the 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 masses of the fragments should add up to the isotopes of the of the of the fissioning uh, or fizzing uh, uh, isotope. So um, uh, that w- that's an example of something that you know um, when I when I first sort of got into this field, and and it, I should mention I'm actually quite new to the field. Mm. I only first sort of came across the field in, in I think it was February of 2022, mm. and it was because. I happened to come across a nature article um, that was co-authored by someone I knew because he was on the board of the Breakthrough Institute. Uh Um, And, and sort of my initial reaction was, you know, what is Ross doing uh, studying cold fusion? (laughs) Um, uh, Because, you know, I had sort of uh, the only thing I knew about it was that it was, it was quite heretical. Um, And, and so then I sort of started to go down, you know, sort of, trying to sort of read into the in, into the literature, spent about six to eight months, went to a conference. And there was a number of these, you know, there was sort of no light bulb moment. Mm. But for me, there was basically a number of these different uh, experimental reports. And it was all really driven by experiment. Uh, There's a number of different experimental reports that had these types of characteristics where they were clearly done by qualified and um, sort of high quality scientists. Mm. Um, the experimental techniques were done well. Um and and the results that they were showing, the observables, the measured values were in were showing results that were not easily dismissed as sort of a, again, sort of a prosaic uh, an error or some sort of, um, sort of, uh, you know, mishap in the experiment. They were very clear, uh, and very unambiguous uh, unambiguously sort of nuclear reaction, uh, observables. Um, and, and so that's, you know, those was basically maybe half a dozen experiments that really stood out to me. Uh, I think i basically linked all of them, um, in the article, mm. um, you know, some people report, um, uh, in their electrolysis experiments, um, neutrons emanating from the, from the electrolysis cells, um, as much as two orders of magnitude above background. Mm. Um, and that, you know, to any sort of physical scientists should scream nuclear reactions. Um, But there's also a number of other different types of experiments um, that have nothing to do with electrolysis at all. Um, So actually there's a a graduate student, Eric Ziem, who actually recently finished his PhD. So he's a postdoc now, he works for uh, George Miley and he has a totally different type of experimental setup that um, produces alpha particles, which are helium nuclei um, at uh, about 140 kilo electron volts emanating from a palladium deuteride hmm. um, to any, again, to any sort of nuclear scientist or sort of, you don't have to be a nuclear physicist. You just need to be a physical scientist. Alpha particles or helium nuclei um, it, coming from a hydrogen environment at very, very high energies should scream nuclear reaction. Hmm. Um, so these are the types of experiments that for me sort of, uh, built up. And after I saw a couple of these, I, I was sort of very convinced that there was something here. And though, though may be anomalous um, uh, and hard to reproduce, and, and there are potentially good reasons for why that's the case, um, uh, sort of screamed to me that there's something here and that it's worth sort of taking a much deeper look at.
0: So, okay, so I got a couple questions from that. Uh, the, the first is of kind of safety. First, how much uh, so because there's nuclear fission and I'm like I am uh wholly on board to get more nuclear fission I'm definitely not a not a uh, not a person who's who's trying to fight that battle because that seems like one of the most important things we can do um uh but uh agreed yeah and but there is a safety issue there and and I don't want to undermine it because there there have been things that have happened in the past um and and there's a lot of different narratives on that past uh but then so there's there's fission. And then there's plasma fusion, and then there's cold fusion. Uh, What is the safety drawbacks of either of those types of fusion? Yeah, so I
1: guess I I should also state for the record, I am sort of a hardcore nuclear advocate across the board. Um, I think we should be building large light water nuclear reactors all over the world. I think we should be deploying uh, and approving regulations for advanced uh, fission reactors Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of the plasma fusion industry. I think that there's a lot of really innovative companies that have, that are sort of trying to commercialize, um, research that has been going on for decades. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of across the board, um, a bigger Um, tent sort of all needs to uh, happen.
0: All needs to happen. Yeah, exactly. Happen quickly. Yeah.
1: Yep. Um, now, uh, you know, uh, it is the case that sort of, uh, nuclear energy has associated radiation uh and sort of like you know like in the case of the in- industry today they have uh, taken exceptionally good care of 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 dealing with nuclear radiation and it's mm-hmm. become it, i would i would i would argue it's the safest uh, energy uh energy source we have um, by the numbers mm. um but it is the case that sort of the, there's different sort of uh associated radiation with with different technologies um the interesting thing with LENR or low energy nuclear reactions, um, is, I mean, fundamentally, if I had to describe what, what it is, is, um, it is nuclear energy outputs with chemical energy inputs. Hmm. And, um, and, and the interesting thing, you know, one of the exciting things for me about Lener, and and part of this comes from sort of the theoretical framework that I and my colleagues are sort of partial to um, in, in in trying to understand again how how you know I, I sort of started uh, the podcast by explaining basically how none of this should be possible, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is I would say sort of like the consensus view of the mainstream physics community, um, but because there 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 are explanations that I think are quite rigorous and quite compelling for sort of that started to explain how some of these some of these phenomena are, are possible. Um, and some of those explanations, some of those theoretical considerations, um potentially paint or sort of pave a pathway whereby um, the nuclear mechanisms that drive Lennar are faster. So the pathways that are, are relevant for, for Lennar are faster mm. than the pathways for conventional fusion. Mm. Um and so in conventional, and that's that that starts to explain why we wouldn't see. The products that you'd expect from conventional fusion, because there's other reaction pathways that can take the nuclear energy um, out of the system um, uh, potentially quicker mm. than the conventional pathways would occur. Mm. Um, and what that starts to maybe allow you to do is to sort of engineer um, or influence the nuclear reaction pathways by tuning material science properties of the of the metal hydrides Um, Mm -hmm. to boil it down even further. It means that maybe you could actually, you know, sort of tune or engineer what kind of radiation you have, and maybe you choose a radiation that will only manifest as heat. And so essentially, you know, I think a lot of people get scared by the the name radiation, but, uh, you know, uh, visible light, you could call that radiation. in, in the case here, I mean, so one of the reactions, there's a very funny quote that I have in the piece where after the initial sort of claims of cold fusion occurred, it was a, a physicist at Caltech who, who said, you know, it's bullshit. If it was true, they'd be dead because mm. the amount of heat that they were claiming would require a certain neutron flux that would have killed them, uh. um, but, <laughs> right? So <It> happened. <laughs> yeah, and so one of the characteristics of cold fusion is, is that it is, very low radiation. and uh, and and um you know it's it's puzzling as to why. But again, I think it's because there are certain reaction pathways that happen quicker than the conventional pathways happen, and those can transfer the nuclear energy um to the lattice or um, hmm. uh, to other nuclear or and and we'll see it, we'll see if this tracks, but can actually transfer the nuclear energy to other nuclei in the metal lattice, mm. so for example, perhaps you have a metal like palladium, mm. a palladium nuclei can actually be excited. And so if you can transfer that fusion, that mass to to energy, that fusion energy to a to a, a metal nuclei like palladium, you could excite the palladium and then that could cause a whole bunch of things to happen. It could cause it to, to emit particles. Um, it could cause it to fizz, to have a fission reaction. Um, and, and so once you start playing around there, then all of a sudden uh, impurities in the mm-hmm. metal hydride become really important. Uh, so if you have you know impurity nuclei, those will have different dynamics um, and you could have different observables from those products. And so all of a sudden we start to paint a picture that begins to explain why, for example, um, in the experimental literature for Lenner, or confusion There's a bunch of different, uh, and and it makes it makes the field really hard to sort of go mm-hmm. down the learning curve, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. to grapple with, uh, because different labs are reporting different experimental results. This person, you know, says they saw 140 kiloelectron alpha particles, and this person said they saw neutrons, and this person said we definitely didn't see neutrons. We saw a tritium. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's all of these different experimental observables, which make them each sort of individually pretty easy to dismiss. But once you start to think about it as a system, and in particular as a quantum system, um, uh, all of a sudden the reaction pathways um, start to look very different. um, And and you can potentially tune, again, to to sort of go back to the original question, you can potentially tune the radiation or tune the reaction pathways using material science properties or stimulation properties, uh, how you excite your system. Um, which is just totally different from conventional nuclear energy or nuclear physics and starts to look a lot more like semiconductors or optoelectronic devices, which is actually what my background's in. Um and and that all of a sudden starts to get super interesting and, and really changes the game. Um, you know, if we can sort of demonstrably prove this.
0: And there's demonstrably proving it and then there's commercializing it, which is another question I have. Uh uh um and the it, uh, it's really interesting because now you just brought into something that it takes a whole another leap into another field, which I just, you talked about philosophy of science earlier, and I've been thinking about Aristotle and how Aristotle was this like polymath who just created all of the different sciences. Uh, and then, you know, all of those works were written over by um, by monks inside of monasteries who thought he was just like this pagan kook, uh, and uh, and then they had they wrote over with like their daily habits in the monastery and stuff, and then somebody rediscovered it written underneath this, this stuff. And so he like created all these different fields, and then now we're at the point where all these fields are essentially just rapidly, rapidly accelerating. So one person can't really understand what's in a subspecialty of a giant field, um, and then you just bring quantum theory into it or quantum stuff into it, and so. Where does that play in? Um, wh- 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 I, what are the principles of the quantum theory that that are important to understand about what you said? I, I got the part that there's material science of the palladium and you can essentially, like things can move around based on how you tune the 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 the, the palladium itself and spread energy or create reactions or create errors, uh, change the radiation. Um, but then how does quantum, like is it the super impo- imposition stuff or is it the... Uh, what 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 are we talking about in that in that in that area
1: yeah yeah okay so um we'll, we'll sort of uh, let me give this let me give this a go so i painted a whole picture of of fusion in a very sort of conventional way mm. um where basically you have like right, like a plasma and you have interactions between uh, between uh, different nuclei And there's some probability that they fuse and that's dependent on the temperature. Um, But one key sort of assumption that you make in that environment, which is the correct assumption for the plasma environment, but not a correct assumption for the solid state environment Mm. is, is that interactions of nuclei uh, of reactant nuclei in the plasma are independent from other interactions. Mm. So an interaction happening in one part of the plasma is completely independent from an interaction in another part of the plasma, but that's not, That's not necessary. That's a bad assumption to make Mm -hmm. uh, in the solid state environment. And interestingly, when you when you go back and sort of, and this was another sort of thing that um, was sort of like, uh, you know, I I mentioned that there were these different experimental reports that I read that were sort of jaw to the floor moments. uh, You know, how is that remotely possible? But I also had other moments where it was like I would go back and read the uh, theoretical literature. You know, there's a, a series of papers that sort of are pointed to or held up as sort of explaining why this is theoretically impossible. And you go back and you read some of these papers and, and and you know, there'll be a quote, you know, like, um, you know, you go back and look at some of the assumptions and, and it's like, we assume that there is no, uh, the way they'll phrase it is like no coherence among um, different fusion reactions going on in, in the system, which is, which is a bad assumption. Um, and so, um, Interesting. So, the, yep. so in, in a metal, in a metal, in a metal hydride or a metal deuteride, um, sort of interacting interactions between hydrogen nuclei in that system um, could be actually coupled to one another. So there mm-hmm. could be some sort of coupling mm-hmm. mechanism. Um, and I guess sort of one way to think about it is you have to sort of change your frame of reference here, um, which is to think about it instead of as sort of like a um, trying to sort of squeeze the two uh, 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 hydrogen nuclei close to each other. Because um, if, if you think about it in that, in that type of a way, if you think about it, if that's how you approach the problem, then it's true that you should, the chances that you get cold fusion, uh, observable cold fusion in a metal hydride is zero. Mm. I mean, it's like 10 to the minus like 60 or something, but it's zero. Um, but uh, um but 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 if instead, if you think about, um, say for example, let's say let's say we're talking about uh, deuterium fusion, so we'll call that DD fusion. So mm-hmm. a deuteron and a deuteron. Uh, and just to remind the listeners, that's a proton and neutron and a proton and neutron. And so um, if you fuse those two, you get helium four.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you get helium four and some energy. Um, And uh, so another way to think about a pair of Deuterons is that as a pair, it's kind of like an excited state of helium four. Now I'll say that again. Basically you can think about helium four as like a ground low energy state. Mm. Uh, And and the pair of Deuterons is kind of like the high energy state, the excited state Mm. of the helium four. And so in that, in that, again, this is very reminiscent of optoelectronics of semiconductors, because now um, Mm. uh, you can throw a whole bunch of new physics tools at the problem. Um, It now starts to look more like a decay, a decay from the excited pair of deuterons to the ground low energy state of helium four, as opposed to sort of a conventional fusion Picture of, of the system.
2: Hmm.
1: And one thing that's quite interesting, and here's sort of where quantum coherence comes into play. If you have um, one excited state, right? So one pair of deuterons, you can you can compute what the the decay rate is. So like hmm. how long would you have to wait to expect to see by chance that the pair of deuterons decay, i.e., fuse into helium four? And the answer is you'd have to wait a really, 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 really long time. And that's why basically the chances that you get fusion in that picture are zero. Um, but interestingly, if you have a bunch of these excited states, so i.e. a bunch of these pairs of deuterons in a metal hydride that are coupled through vibrations in the lattice, and I can explain that process in a, in a second, mm. um, if they're coupled in some way, then uh, you would expect that the ensemble, that the fusion rate for the ensemble would scale linearly with N. So I'll just put some, I'll I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, Basically, let's say that, uh, these are just sort of made up numbers, but just to sort of help paint the picture. Let's say you would, you know, like the um, uh, one pair of of deuterons would, you would expect it to fuse once per second. Let's say that's its decay rate or Mm -hmm. fusion rate. Mm -hmm. If you had 10 pairs, then in one second, you would expect to see 10 fusion reactions because they all are, you know, one per second and you have 10 of them. So 10 times one equals 10. Interestingly, when you have um, a ensemble of these excited states that are coupled to one another, Mm. you can get a sort of collective Mm -hmm. effects where you start to think about it as sort of like one collective excited state as opposed to 10 individual ones. And one thing that, that, um, and and this physics goes back actually like to the fifties. And this was sort of first developed for the electronic energy scale, but it's now been actually recently applied to the nuclear energy scale.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
1: And experiments that have nothing to do with cold fusion, but turns out we think are quite applicable. But the principle here is, is that when you have an ensemble of these excited states that are coupled to each other, the rate of the whole system starts to go like n squared. So in the example we had earlier, even if individually you would expect them to decay or fuse once per second, right? These pair of deuterons, you expect one fusion per second. Instead of it being, when you look at for 10 of them, if they're coupled together, instead of it being 10 per second, Mm. uh, or sorry, uh, yeah, instead of it being 10 per second for the whole, it would be 10 squared a hundred per second. Mm-hmm. And so you get this acceleration from these collective of quantum effects. And you can imagine that if you have many, many, many hydrogen pairs that mm. are coupled in a metal hydride, all of a sudden, uh, the acceleration starts to, to grow um, like, like the, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, quadratically. Yeah. Um, and, and all of a sudden you can get a lot of acceleration, a lot of accelerated dynamics. And the thesis is is those exce- that acceleration of the fusion rate or the decay rate, right, in this picture, um, could overcome, because right, we still haven't dealt with the problem of the Coulomb repulsion. Uh-huh. The positive charges of the of the deuterons don't want to come together, mm. but the acceleration of the rate, where they, you can think about it like the acceler- the increase of the probability, can start to overcome and overpower that repulsion, and so it's a very different picture. And hopefully, I explained that um in a, a approachable way but it's a very different picture in the solid state environment and 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 that really starts to open up a whole bunch of really out there interesting physics that you know, funny enough, uh, is, is actually a very comfortable place for somebody coming from yeah, op- electronics or semiconductors.
0: Yeah. That's, that's the thing that I'm getting from this is that going back to that kind of Aristotle and also the book range, uh, uh, the, the ability to come into a new field from what you, which you studied before, uh, and then apply those learnings is where you get a lot of the breakthroughs. Um, and it's really interesting because it, it, uh, there's a lot of different questions I, I want to ask, but I, we only have like uh, 10, minute, 10 more minutes left. Uh, th- there's the commercialization angle. There's the um, w- wanting to figure out about, uh, I forget what it is. No, it su- well, no, you studied semiconductors, but then there's this guy on Twitter that's talking about superconductors. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. And then there's commercialization. There's all those. Oh, and then there's also a random thing. One of my fifth grade, um, Uh, One of my fifth grade science teachers told me that once we ever get to fusion, we'll be able to take trash and then put it through the fusion reactor reactor and then create all the uh, basic elements from it and then be able to basically do full on 100% recycling of everything. So the meaning that we could immediately take the trash and put it into its constituent elements and then reuse all of those elements in a usable form. First, I would like to fact check that. Is that any accurate from what you understand? This is like 25 years ago now.
1: Um. yeah i'm not i'm not uh nothing's coming you definitely wouldn't put you definitely you definitely wouldn't put it in the fusion reactor Uh um i mean you would just turn it to to to, you you you'd incinerate it pretty quickly um oh interesting um but um yeah, I, I, I don't know about that one. but So, uh, so,
0: so it's not it's not nothing's coming up because this is this is like a fifth grader uh, interpreting a, a, a science teacher uh, from 25 years ago. So it's not the most uh, uh maybe may quite a thing. But I just wanted to see whether whether that that is at all anything within the realm. But let's uh, unless you have anything else to say about it, let's talk about uh, we got commercialization. We got this. Let's talk about commercialization. Like, how far are we from sure. from commercializing this?
1: It's a good question. I mean, so I, I, I hesitate with timelines. Yeah. Um. But my prior, you know, uh, for sort of cold fusion or Lenar is is actually the transistor. Um. There's a whole really rich history, uh, of, of, of with the transistor. You know, uh, up until recently, I thought that this was, um, I sort of have, uh, you know, thought like most people that, you know, Bell Labs sort of came together in the late '40s. Uh, figured this out and and they got a physical review letter and then a Nobel prize and, um, but there was actually like 30 years of at first sort of anomalous reports mm-hmm. of amplification effects in these crystals in the solid state. And it was sort of a bit of a taboo, um, uh, famous physicists called it the physics of dirt. Um, it wasn't very reproducible for reasons we understand now. Um, uh-huh and uh and so there was a whole host of issues but it slowly slowly sort of chugged along and there were people who still sort of did the did the work and but it started off with like sort of tinkerers and and you know um and and then eventually it got to like the you know the precipice of bell labs and and they had a integrated research program a solid state physics program and they sort of figured it out, and they understood the theory. And once they understood the theory, then they could make a reproducible experiment. Interesting. So I think in the case of cold fusion, I think reproducibility will come once we have theory. Um, but before we have theory, uh, or or sort of before we get to a, what, what we would call like a reference experiment, which is fully reproducible, which is sort of what you need before you can really start to commercialize um, the technology, in my view. Before you get there, you have to have you know, because I like you know, I think a dispassionate review of the experimental evidence to date should lead uh, an open-minded scientist to conclude that there's something here, um, and that sort of like the verboten nature of the topic is 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 incorrect and misplaced. Um, but I don't think that we're going to convince sort of skeptical scientists, and, and I understand why they're skeptical. It makes perfect yeah. sense. I just yeah. think it's not very open-minded, and and isn't actually sort of. Um, um, I think most people just haven't read the literature at all. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think we're going to convince folks uh, of uh, you know, in you know, my colleagues in the physics community um, by showing them a paper from the late 90s. Uh, so yeah. I think what we need is I think we need a current, uh, well articulated, very, very high quality, unambiguous nuclear anomaly published in a prominent journal um, to sort of catalyze the rest of the community to say, oh, we really overlooked this one. And because we need a lot of people and a lot of both financial and human resources to sort of come into the field because um, uh, it's a really difficult problem. And and before you can, I think, and, and some people disagree with me on this. Some people think like um, the, the route for it is someone's just going to commercialize, a, you know, like a cold fusion boiler and then. And then it'll be obvious to everyone that there's something here. Mm. I I don't hold that view, but some people do, and I so I could be wrong. Um, I think I think first you have to have that really sort of high quality published result. Then a bunch of people come to the field, and we work on a reference experiment, and then commercialization ensues. Um, interestingly, with the transistor, it took you know, uh, it it, it once once the transistor was sort of uh, demonstrably proven, it didn't sort of all come together mm-hmm. right away. It took a while for sort of that to turn into integrated chips, and then uh, you know ultimately to today, you know where we have like sort of smartphones. So I don't know, but it could t- it could take some time. Um, but I'm I'm hopeful that that we're sort of uh, you know it took thirty years for t- for the transistor to be sort of demonstrably proven, and we're about thirty years out from the initial claims of cold fusion. So I, I I hope we're sort of um, sort of galvanizing and, and 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 making progress and and, and sort of um, change the change the uh, sort of view of, of of the field quite soon.
0: Very interesting. Uh, the thing you mentioned about the difference between theory and practice is extremely interesting. Well, not only theory and practice, but theory and practice and commercialization uh, is very interesting to hear that you need to consolidate around a theory in order to then apply that theory in a consistent way. Because w- I've been thinking a lot about theory and practice in outside of the science world, uh, and just in terms of like dancing or riding a bike or doing all these different things, and like you can't learn. How to ride a bike from reading a book about how to ride a bike, but you can learn how to ride a bike, and then you can read a book about it, writing, learning how to, re- no, then you can read a book about learning how to ride a bike in a better way in a particular specialty that will improve your ability to write, ride that bike. For example, you know, I, I was, I just saw this guy riding on this bicycle that was completely flat. He was lying down, and you know, you could find out about. That bicycle from reading a book, and so like, uh, like the 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 practice will get you to the eighty percent, where then you can understand the theory. Uh, and that final twenty percent that will allow you to go back and revisit the whole thing and and kind of find new. And I wonder, do you, like as of the last couple of minutes, do you find that that's to be an accurate representation of theory and practice within the sciences as well? Yeah, I, I like that. I
1: like that analogy.
0: I think um, I think it's it's very rare in
1: physics that actually people make predictions that then um, get shown to be true in experiment. And, mm-hmm. and when that happens, you know, in when that happens in, in a big major way, um, it's very impressive. Um, but oftentimes what happens is there's an unexpected experimental report. Everyone scratches their head. The theorists come, uh, and, and figure and it out Explain that, that, that yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, it's so interesting. Okay, well, so uh, this has been a huge joy. And uh, there's the article. So go to the breakthrough.org uh, and search for fusion runs hot and cold. Um, and I'll also put that in the show notes as well. Um, and uh, any anywhere else people can find out find you if they're interested, if they they thought about this and 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 wanted to learn more.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll sort of mention a few things. Um, in that in that article, fusion runs hot and cold at the, at the beginning of the article, I link to a manuscript that my colleagues and I released, which is basically our uh, a version of our grant application um, that we sent to the Department of Energy to get, to get our research program funded um, to sort of help, um, you know, if, especially if you were interested in some of those quantum coherence ideas, we lay that out um, a little mm-hmm. bit more explicitly in that paper. So that's linked in, in, in the Fusion Runs, Runs Hot and Cold article. Um, I guess a, a book that I think I'll recommend here um, by Ed Storms, who's a, long time Los Alamos national lab research scientist called the explanation of low energy nuclear reactions. I think it's the probably the best book uh, in terms of packaging together all the different experimental evidence to date, or I guess through 2014. Um, And then I'm on Twitter. um, I think just at Jonah Messinger. Um, I'm very active on there. And uh, if anyone had any questions or sort of um, wants to sort of dig in a little bit more, so I'm, you know, Feel free to find me on Twitter and, and ask me. Um, I'm I'm always open to to talk about this stuff. So,
0: yeah, a lot of people are going through my mind specifically on Twitter who I want to send this article to. And also, I think you should uh, try to get on uh, JP O'Shaughnessy's podcast, uh, Infinite Loops. I think he would he would be a, a perfect person to continue this conversation with. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thank you so much, Jonah.
1: Thanks, Stuart. Really, really, really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart III. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.